G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. I'm excited about this episode because, as far as I can tell, it's going to be full of my favourite things, Tim, superheroes, Bible references, Transformers. I love pop culture nostalgia. Yeah, there's certainly going to be lots of those things, although maybe not in the way you were thinking about them, but I don't want to give it away yet. What I will say now is that we're going to dive deep into the story of Enoch as it continues after first Enoch had left its mark on the New Testament. This will be our final episode on Enoch before we return to Genesis 5, and we're definitely going to have a Jewish superhero, not Superman, and I'm going to refer to at least three different generations of cartoon hero goodness. Now, we've talked before about why the book of Enoch that we've spent so much time on already is called First Enoch. It's because there are other books based on the story of Enoch, and we can't cover all of it, but I thought our listeners might get a kick out of looking at some of those other books. And we're going to start with Second Enoch, or the Book of the Secrets of Enoch, also known as Slavonic Enoch. Okay, why is it called Slavonic Enoch? It's because, just like First Enoch is best known from its manuscripts that we have in the Ethiopic language, hence why they call it Ethiopic Enoch in the scholarly community, Second Enoch is best known from the manuscripts we have in a language called Slavonic, or sometimes it's called Church Slavonic. So it's the language that the best or the most manuscripts come from that determines the naming convention. Fair enough, that makes sense. I should tell you something about that language called Slavonic or Church Slavonic. You might have guessed from the name that it's an Eastern European language. And the reason they call it Church Slavonic is because it was the official language used by the Orthodox Church in places where this language was and in some cases still is in use. And we're talking places like Belarus, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Bulgaria, North Macedonia, Montenegro, Poland, Ukraine, Russia, Serbia, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia, Croatia. And you'll find that wherever that brand of Eastern Orthodoxy goes, the language goes with them. So even in America or here in Australia, you can find Church Slavonic in use for liturgical purposes in Orthodoxy. And even in some Catholic churches too. Sometimes they just call it Slavic. And no, it has nothing to do with slavery. Second Enoch is a book we're learning a lot about in recent years. You see, we used to think that it was written really late, like a long time after the biblical period, because the earliest manuscripts we had were something like 14th to 18th century. We only had a handful of copies, all of them written in Slavonic, except for one in a Croatian dialect of a medieval language called Glagolitic, which dates to the 17th century. We have two different versions in the Slavonic, a short version and a longer one, kind of like the director's cut edition. We also used to think it must have been originally composed in one of those Slavic countries. So are you saying things have changed? Yeah, a lot of what we thought we knew about Second Enoch came into question relatively recently. In 2009, less than 20 years ago, four pieces of text were found in Nubia, written in Coptic. That's Egyptian. And these fragments date to the 8th century. Now, that's earlier than anything we had previously by a long shot, and it proves that Second Enoch had a history prior to its use in Europe and Russia. But the most interesting stuff about Second Enoch comes from the textual analysis. The book makes reference to earlier written works that we already knew about from elsewhere. There's First Enoch, obviously, and the Hebrew Bible itself, but we're also talking about books like the Testament of Levi in the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, and you've got stuff like the life of Adam and Eve. I think we've talked about that before. 
These influences help us date the book. One thing that should come as no surprise to anyone who's been following this podcast through this season is the fact that Second Enoch uses the Septuagint, not only the chronology, but the Hellenized names and everything. And that's how we know it was the Septuagint in use, not an earlier Hebrew Bible. Now, because we know about the source materials in use, we can say with confidence that this text could have been written as early as 30 BC. But that's only half of the dating issue. We also need to know how late it could have been written. This book makes frequent reference to the temple in Jerusalem. Although it uses a name for Jerusalem that many of us might be unfamiliar with. It refers to Jerusalem as Ahuzan. That's what they reckon the place was called before there was a town built there. And you could say that just because the temple gets mentioned, that doesn't mean we're necessarily in the second temple period. Fair enough, but we have no evidence from the text that the author is aware of its destruction in AD 70. Not even a hint of being sad about it or talking in wishful thinking terms. We don't really have any text-driven reason to suggest that the author thinks the temple doesn't exist anymore, and that should steer us toward a date no later than AD 70. So that gives us a roughly 100-year window. My maths aren't that great, but I can work that out uh, from 30 BC to AD 70. But uh, don't you think that if this is a Jewish story from the first century, there should be some reference to Jesus? You might think so, but there are some things to think about here. It is a Jewish story, but it's not written by people who live in Judea. And we know that because of more details in the text, there's strong influence from not only Hellenists, but also Egyptian ideas. And that tells us that the author was probably a Jew who spoke and wrote in Greek, but lived in Alexandria in Egypt. That's a long way from Jerusalem. Even if the author lived at the same time as Jesus, he wouldn't have heard of Jesus until the apostles travelled there as missionaries sometime later. But the message of the text indicates that a later date is likely somewhere between AD 38 and 70. We also need to be aware that it's the short version that's probably original and the longer version has had stuff added to it after the fact. The longer version has features that cannot be dated to the same period as the earlier version. We can also see the work of heretical Christian redactors in the late manuscript tradition. Okay, so what about the book itself? What is it? What's the story, Morning Glory? Well, you know how Disney keeps doing remakes of their older movies like The Little Mermaid? Yeah. Well, the author of Second Enoch isn't doing a crappy remake just to maintain intellectual property rights, but he is essentially presenting a remake of First Enoch. Why would you do that? Well, it's all about the messaging. Just like Disney rolling out a familiar Trojan horse packed full of woke agenda, the reason anyone retells a story is because of the messaging. Now, when the author of First Enoch originally retold the Genesis 6 story, it was about putting Jews back on the right track by correcting the religious calendar and denouncing the Babylonian obsession with culture and technology. When we get to Second Enoch, we've got different problems to deal with. So you package your message in a familiar narrative and add in the important stuff as a spin on the story. And that means you're going to dig out Genesis 5 and 6 again in light of the first Enoch expansion and give it a fresh coat. I see. So what's the reason behind this retelling of the Enoch story then? What problems are we talking about? So the Jews in Alexandria, who had been part of the furniture there for over 300 years and lived peacefully there as contributing members of society, they started to get a bad name because Ptolemy VII didn't like the way that they opposed his attempt to take the kingdom of Egypt from Cleopatra. And that slowly built into a tide of anti-Semitism that resulted in political movements against the Jews, designed to leverage the power of Rome against Alexandrian Jews. Ultimately, that led to violence and exile. And the thrust of the story of Second Enoch is basically a call to perseverance. 
in Jewish religious customs and faithfulness, resisting idolatry and maintaining temple worship. It also reinforces the calendar presented in First Enoch. Okay, that sounds simple enough. I can, I can understand that. Yeah, it does sound simple when we put it like that. Unfortunately, things are never that simple. Oh, but why can't they be? What do you mean? Well, the calendar thing's a mess. Because there's another calendar also presented in Second Enoch. And unlike the calendar in First Enoch, which was a 364-day lunisolar calendar, this one is a more scientifically accurate 365.25-day solar calendar. So that's Egyptian. Remember, they love the sun god stuff, so they don't care about the faces of the moon. And it looks very much like two or more different traditions are being smushed together in this book to try and promote the idea of everybody getting along, as long as the Jews can still do Jewish things. Right, so there's some of that Trojan horse stuff coming out. Yeah, and there's also some doctrinal stuff that's a bit weird, not exactly biblical. This book mentions Greek ideas like the pre-existence of souls. That's where God created the souls of men before he made the world. This also fits into a bit of a gap theory kind of thing where the author talks about a prior angelic civilization in rebellion against God before creation. And that's how he explains the problem of human evil as having an angelic origin. We've already talked a lot about this in the early seasons of the podcast, so we're not going there now. There are also some Egyptian ideas creeping in here. We have a retelling of creation as per Genesis 1, but with all kinds of extra stuff jammed in there. In this version, darkness and light are divine beings created by God, and God separates them and forms the cosmos out of them. And that's reminiscent of Mesopotamian stories where Marduk tears Tiamat in half and that kind of thing. Right, so there's some stuff in here, obviously, that's definitely not cool as far as Orthodox Jews and Christians are concerned then. Yeah, definitely. By all means, read this stuff, but be careful not to read it back into your Bible. That's going to mess you up. Anyway, as I mentioned, this is all in the name of trying to encourage everyone in first century Alexandria to get along, and it inevitably results in compromise. But I will say this, at least the text remains fiercely monotheistic, and it goes to great lengths to insist that only the biblical God created the world. That's important. Whether or not you buy the Gnostic stuff that the Orthodox Church teaches about humans being created originally as luminous, immaterial beings of light, that's another thing to think about. But you've already got my perspective on that from our earlier seasons of the podcast. Yeah, we still have to be careful about some of this stuff. So what's going on in this story? When we started talking about this, I thought it was just about the stuff in First Enoch, but you're saying there's stuff about creation and Adam and Eve and all that. You don't really get much of that from First Enoch. Yeah, that's a good observation. We had little touches of this in the book of the similitudes, you know, the second part of First Enoch, but it was really just passing mentions. Second Enoch goes into a lot more depth in an attempt to bring together two divergent traditions of the origin of human depravity. On the one hand, you have the Adam and Eve story, complete with the serpent in the garden, who gets later identified as Satan. On the other hand, other stories in the Second Temple period emphasize the sin of the Watchers, as told in Genesis 6 and expanded by First Enoch. These stories are usually told separately. That's why the Book of the Watchers has nothing about Satan, and it's the other way around for the Adamic traditions that don't emphasize the Watchers. And you might wonder, how could anyone follow the first three chapters of Genesis and not the next three or the other way around? But we have to remember that what we think of as biblical canon wasn't established until much later. It's not like everybody has an entire Hebrew Bible at this time. Some communities have access to certain scriptures and not others. And depending on their individual context and the concerns that they're dealing with, certain parts are going to be more important to them than others. And that's where Second Enoch is different. According to Second Enoch, there's this bad guy incorporated into the Watchers story, and his name is Satanael. 
He's one of three chief antagonists. We know the other two already as Samyaza and Azazel. Although when the three of them are mentioned together, their names are Azza, Azza, and Azael. Anyway, Satanael leads a rebellion in heaven prior to the creation of the world, and he fights the Archangel Michael, and of course he loses, so he and his mates end up being the bad guys. This whole thing is apparently over the issue of who's in charge on the earth because Satanael learns that God intends to create man and make the angels subordinate to the humans. This is part of a tradition we find in other works that Second Enoch depends on, such as the life of Adam and Eve. So that's the Adamic stream of thought coming into the story, and it gets blended into the Enochic tradition as the author inserts Satanael into the Watchers story. Satanael gets disgraced by his defeat and loses that divine appellative, so he's just called Satan after that. Anyway, you know the standard Enoch narrative. Enoch pleases God, so God takes him on a tour of the heavens. But this time we have a late development on what that looks like, and there are ten levels of heaven like concentric spheres. It's very Greek, but then it's also very Jewish because these levels of the heavens don't really have any solid location. The first heaven is the sky, the second and the fifth seem to be the underworld, and in the seventh, God sees Enoch in the distance, and God is in the tenth heaven. This makes a lot more sense if we stop thinking of heaven as a good place and think of it more as immaterial place. So Enoch sees the watchers in the second heaven and more of them in the fifth, and it's made clear that they're being punished for following their prince, who is Satana Il. By the way, because of the Slavonic translation, the watchers are called the Grigori in this book. It means the same thing. Anyway, that's an element you don't get in First Enoch. Here's an extract from Second Enoch chapter 7 from verse 1. And the men took me and brought me to the second heaven and showed me the darkness. And there I saw the prisoners suspended, reserved for and awaiting the eternal judgment. And these angels were gloomy in appearance, more than the darkness of the earth. And they unceasingly wept every hour. And I said to the men who were with me, why are these men continually tortured? And the men answered me, these are they who apostatized from the Lord, who obeyed not the commandments of God and took counsel of their own will and transgressed together with their prince, and have been already confined to the second heaven. And I felt great pity for them. And lo, the angels made obeisance to me, and said to me, O man of God, pray for us to the Lord. And I answered them, Who am I, a mortal man, that I should pray for angels? Who knows whither I go, or what awaits me, or who prays for me? So, did you notice the bit about angels making obeisance to Enoch? That goes back to those Second Temple period stories of Adam and Eve, where God made man superior over the angels, and they were supposed to honour the humans as higher creatures. It was Satan's refusal to submit and make obeisance to Adam that got him kicked out of heaven. This story is drawing on that tradition and shows Enoch as getting the proper respect from the angels. All right, all of this stuff is pretty cool and interesting as usual, but I was led to believe that we were going to be talking about superheroes and Transformers and all that kind of stuff, and so far all you've delivered is the Little Mermaid, not what I'm here for. Okay, fair enough. Well, it does have giants in it, though, and what I do like about this text is that it actually does describe the giants as being unnaturally tall. That's actually a rare thing. Let me just say first that the reason we've talked about all this has been building towards a good bit The author of Second Enoch is bringing in the Adamic tradition because he sees Adam as the epitome of what humans are meant to be like. Glorious, powerful, radiant beings who have dominion over the created world under God. Actually, that's one of the reasons we know this book had to have been written originally in Greek. 
The name Adam in Greek is spelled with four letters that also happen to be the first letter of each of the cardinal points, the four directions, as in north, south, east, west, in Greek. And that's made explicit in a little acrostic poem featured in the text to indicate the dominion of man over the world, which is a super nerdy detail because it only works in Greek. And that's one way we can prove that the original was written in Greek, not Slavonic or Hebrew or whatever else. And that's important because for the author of Second Enoch, it's this original dominion mandate, as he understands it, that's at stake here in the story of the divine conflict. So that's the idea of the charge that God gives Adam as a commandment to rule the world. As you know, I think we ought to read that differently. And we've talked about that before, but that's what's going on here. And it's a reminder that not every first century Jewish idea is a good idea. You get other stuff in here, like the pre-existence of souls and other heretical ideas too. But the point is, the author sees Adam as the ideal representation of man, functioning as the intermediary between God and all of creation. That's a familiar concept. Weren't we talking about Enoch in those terms before? Yeah, that's right. Now, I'm going to read another passage, which is where Enoch gets shown the fifth heaven. And here we're going to see the beginning of his transformation as he steps into the function of an intermediary between God and the angels. So this is chapter 18 of Second Enoch. The men took and brought me up into the fifth heaven, and I saw there many hosts not to be counted, called Grigori. And their appearance was like men, and their size was greater than that of the giants. And their countenances were withered, and their lips are always silent. And there was no service in the fifth heaven. And I said to the men who were with me, Why are these men very withered, and their faces melancholy, and their lips silent, and there is no service in this heaven? And they said to me, These are the Grigori, who with their prince Satanael rejected the Holy Lord. And in consequence of these things they are kept in great darkness in the second heaven. And of them there went three to the earth from the throne of God to the place Hermon. And they entered into dealings on the side of Mount Hermon, and they saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and took unto themselves wives, and they made the earth foul with their deeds. And they acted lawlessly in all times of this age, and wrought confusion. And the giants were born, and the strangely tall men. And there was much wickedness. And on account of this, God judged them with a mighty judgment. And they lament for their brethren, and they will be punished at the great day of the Lord. And I said to the Grigori, I have seen your brethren in their works and their great torments. And I have prayed for them, but God has condemned them to be under the earth till the heaven and earth are ended forever. And I said, Why do you wait, brethren, and not serve before the face of the Lord? Perform your duties before the face of the Lord and do not anger your Lord to the end. And they listened to my rebuke, and they stood in the four orders in this heaven. And lo, as I was standing with these men, four trumpets resounded together with a loud voice. And the Grigori sang with one voice, and their voices went forth before the Lord with sadness and tenderness. Uh, that's the end of the reading. What a beautiful passage here. I don't know about you, but I find that very touching. Um, now we're going to see how, for this author, Enoch becomes the new Adam. Remember that for us, we can look back at Jesus and see all this in retrospect, but back in those days, they didn't know who it was going to be. And the best they could do was just pick great figures from the past and thrust them forward into the future. So now we've seen how Enoch first acts in the role of the divine mediator. And next he goes all super scion and morphs into his final form, which in future episodes of the Enoch saga, we'll see him referred to as Metatron. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I love Megatron. No, 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 not Megatron, it's Metatron. Think 
less sarcastic transforming robot cannon and more glorified human saint. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's disappointing. That is a pretty cool transformation, though. Let's have a look at that in the text. This is Second Enoch, chapter 22. In the tenth heaven, the archangel Michael brought Enoch in front of the face of the Lord. And on the tenth heaven, called Aravot, I saw the view of the face of the Lord, like iron made burning hot in a fire and brought out, and it emits sparks and is incandescent. Thus even I saw the face of the Lord. But the face of the Lord is not to be talked about. It is so very marvellous and supremely awesome and supremely frightening. And who am I to give an account of the incomprehensible being of the Lord and of his face so extremely strange and indescribable? And how many are his commands and his multiple voice and the Lord's throne supremely great and not made by hands? And the choir stalls all around him, the cherubim and the seraphim armies, and they're never silent singing. Who can give an account of his beautiful appearance, never changing and indescribable, and his great glory? And I fell down flat and did obeisance to the Lord. And the Lord with his own mouth said to me, Be brave, Enoch. Don't be frightened. Stand up and stand in front of my face forever. And Michael, the Lord's greatest archangel, lifted me up and brought me in front of the face of the Lord. And the Lord said to his servants, sounding them out, Let Enoch join in and stand in front of my face forever. And the Lord's glorious ones did obeisance and said, Let Enoch yield in accordance with your word, O Lord. And the Lord said to Michael, Go and extract Enoch from his earthly clothing and anoint him with my delightful oil and put him into the clothes of my glory. And so Michael did. Just as the Lord had said to him, he anointed me and he clothed me. And the appearance of that oil is greater than the greatest light. And its ointment is like sweet dew and its fragrance myrrh. And it is like the rays of the glittering sun. And I looked at myself and I had become like one of his glorious ones. And there was no observable difference. All right, that's the end of that reading. So if you've read lots of ancient literature or you've seen the references to this kind of thing in my book, you'll know that this is an essential part of what constitutes a classic ascent narrative. By receiving divine clothing and anointing oil, Enoch has achieved glorification as it was always intended. You see this kind of language in the New Testament quite often, especially in Paul's letters, where he talks frequently about putting on certain aspects of the divine nature. So we've got to keep all this in perspective. This kind of apocalyptic literature is designed to reassure Jews that in spite of whatever's going wrong in the world, we know that God is faithful and everything's going to work out fine for those who remain faithful to him. The righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will meet their doom and God wins in the end. And what we see in Enoch is first his journey to be where God is, then his stepping up into the role God has for him, and finally his glorification as the mediator that Adam and by extension mankind was meant to be. Again, that doesn't make Enoch divine, and he's no substitute for Jesus, but that isn't the point. The point is that in Second Enoch we see, rather than the messianic figure of First Enoch, the glorification of the faithful and the restoration of all things to that Edenic ideal, which again brings us back to the idea that when God works all this stuff out, he's going to reverse not only the sin of the watchers on Mount Hermon, but also the fall of man and the sin of Satan in Eden. Well, I guess that makes up for the lack of shape-shifting robots from space. It is cool, I must say, but it does make me think, if this really was written in the first century, does it have any influence on the New Testament? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and it's hard to say. You don't get any explicit cross-references, and pretty much all of the overlapping ideas can be found elsewhere. So if there was any interaction between Second Enoch and the New Testament, we really couldn't say at this stage. We're learning more all the time, though. 
but we should recognise that Alexandria is a long way from Judea, and literature doesn't travel quickly in the ancient world. It's not likely that there was much opportunity for these texts to interact, especially given the socio-political environment at the time. And you've only got to look at the Qumran community to see how a little distance from persecution can result in the isolation of a literary tradition. Fair enough. Uh, so what else is in the story of Second Enoch? You've, you've got me interested now. Okay, so the other interesting bit about Second Enoch is when Melchizedek shows up. What? You mean the guy from Genesis 14? How does that fit into a story about Genesis 5 and 6? That's the other side of the flood. Yeah, remember that Trojan horse thing? Everybody's trying to package stuff into this book for the purposes of theological messaging, and this is probably a late addition to the text. It looks like it was added to the end by a Jewish redactor and then fiddled with by heretical Christians. Okay, so I'd like to see how they make this work in terms of the storyline because it doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, but fair warning, you need to have your disbelief suspenders turned on. The story has moved from Enoch to his descendants. Methuselah becomes a high priest. And there's a question over the succession of the priesthood. He knows he's going to die. So he passes the priesthood down to his grandson. Uh, so that would be Noah. Well, you'd think so, but the author doesn't want Noah to be the high priest, so Noah gets a brother. Does Noah even have a brother? Well, according to this author, yes. Nobody's ever heard of this guy, but we need him in the story for some reason. His name is Nier, spelt N-I-R, but that's a transliteration of the Greek, which is itself a transliteration of whatever it was in Hebrew, uh, if it was anything in Hebrew. We don't even know. And I think he gets to be the priest so that the priesthood doesn't fall into disgrace when Noah messes up after the flood. Having said that, he almost gets disgraced. See, he's got a wife, and she gets pregnant, and nobody knows how. It's a virgin birth, but they can't tell anybody. And she hides to protect her husband, but eventually she's due to have the baby, and when her husband sees her, he loses the plot. But she suddenly falls down dead, and Nira goes and gets his brother Noah so they can secretly bury her so that nobody finds out she was pregnant. And when they get ready to bury her, there's this three-year-old kid sitting there. <laughs> what? And he's like, hey, what's up? I'm Melchizedek, and I just got born out of your dead wife. I'm the new high priest. And then the archangel Michael turns up, and he's like, I tell you what, let's just put this guy away in the Garden of Eden until after the flood. And obviously Eden's thought of as this heavenly place now and not a location on Earth. This is where it starts to get really obvious that many hands are at work tampering with the original text, because even though this is in itself in addition to the original, it seems that nobody could just leave this part alone either, because you get all sorts of chronological issues here. The archangel gives a date when Melchizedek is going to return. And, of course, it has to coincide with Abraham. So he says it's going to be 3,432 years since creation. So that's problematic in itself because nobody's using the Anno Mundi dating scheme yet if this really is a first century component of the text. But then again, it could be one of the first examples of its use. Like I say, it's problematic. But that's not the only way that Michael put a date on Melchizedek's return. He also says it's going to happen in 1,070 years in the future from that perspective in the story. And so far we have two indications of the time when Melchizedek will return, but then we get a third one. The final chronological indicator that he gives is that it's going to be 12 generations until we see Melchizedek. The problem is that you can't have all three working out in any chronological scheme that we know of. It doesn't work in the original Hebrew chronology preserved in the Septuagint. It doesn't work in the Masoretic timeline. It doesn't work in the Samaritan timeline. It just doesn't work. But depending on which scheme you want to choose, you might get two out of three of those indicators lining up to get Melchizedek contemporary with Abraham. And what that tells us is that the aim of this text is to unify people who are on different calendars and chronologies. 
The idea is to bring everyone into agreement on Melchizedek and his relationship to Abraham. And the author wants to do that because he's got a whole other Trojan horse that he's bringing into the story here, packed full of ideas about Melchizedek that he needs to introduce to the discussion around priesthood. And what the author seems to be doing is he's capitalizing on the recognized supremacy of the Melchizedek priesthood and bringing it back prior to the flood so he can connect it to the line of patriarchs that he considers to have been the forerunners of the priesthood. So we're back to this idea that Seth, the son of Adam, is the original good guy, who instead of being some kind of mystic astronomer and revealer of secrets and civilization, is instead cast as a priest. So Methuselah inherits this mantle of the priesthood and passes it to his grandson, Noah's brother, Near and his son is Melchizedek. Doesn't this mean that whoever is in charge of God's people can't be Noah's son Shem? Doesn't Israel come through Shem? I would have thought that's important. Yeah, it is. But then you have to remember that this is a great big melting pot full of weird fringe ideas in various pockets of Jewish thought at the time. One of those says that Melchizedek actually is Shem. You can see that in the Babylonian Talmud. It was made popular by Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha. He's going to be important later. We'll talk more about him. But it started in Targum Neophyte. We also have it in Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. I might add that it only works in the timeline of the Masoretic text, where Shem outlives Abraham by 35 years, despite being born 390 years earlier than Abraham. Now, I think we're probably better off thinking of that in the same way that we talked about John the Baptist being Elijah rather than actually being the same historical figure. Right, so if Shem becomes Melchizedek, it's not that the two guys are really the same person. Yeah, but even then people are going to interpret that in different ways. But we're getting off track here. The point is that since the priesthood comes from before the flood, it's better than the one that begins after the flood. Because in the ancient Near Eastern paradigm, everything from before the flood is superior. They don't make them like they used to. That's right, kids these days. Uh, Anyway, the important part is that they've taken the wording of a passage in Genesis 14 to mean that Abraham has inherited the priesthood from Melchizedek. How do you get that? Well, this is the passage from Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the logic is that since Melchizedek blessed Abraham before he blessed God, in doing that, he's conferred the priesthood to Abraham. That's a Jewish idea, but it gets used in this text by a Christian redactor who was also something of a heretic. And you would do that if you wanted to be able to say that the Abrahamic priesthood isn't tied to ethnic Jewish identity, but instead tied to the covenant promise that God makes to Abraham and the idea that the people of God are those who are faithful to him regardless of ethnicity. In other words, it breaks the chain of the historical Levitical priesthood and opens the way for a Gentile priesthood. So this addition of Melchizedek to the story here is designed to bring all the various competing beliefs and ideologies and the political spectrum into a single unified group in order to diffuse the tension in Alexandria among these Egyptian Jews, who by this late stage in the development of the text are also experiencing persecution from the church. Unfortunately, the way they go about it is by bringing in heaps of heretical ideas and smashing them all together, which instead of unifying everyone, probably just got everyone offended. And that's why Second Enoch never makes it into anybody's scriptural canon. So that whole situation basically brings in a whole heap of issues that have affected Judaism and Christianity to the present day. We haven't got the time to go into those ramifications here, but certainly it's worth pondering your own faith tradition and how some of these ideas may have crept in. 
sounds like Second Enoch was actually a, a hugely influential text, despite the fact that nobody wanted to recognise it as canon. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, Chris. Now, we haven't got a lot of time left in this episode, but I also want to touch on Third Enoch. What? There's a Third Enoch now? Yeah, the revelation of Metatron. Oh, right. You said that name before. That's Enoch. Yeah, so this is a very different thing compared to the previous books of Enoch. It's still pseudepigraphical, but not from the point of view of Enoch himself. This time it's written from the perspective of a rabbi named Ishmael. Remember I mentioned him earlier? But we can't actually be sure who this guy is because we don't have any historical information that matches up with this story. It's written mostly in Hebrew, so it gets called the Hebrew Enoch, in keeping with those naming conventions we talked about before, but some of the words in it are actually Latin, so it can't have been a very early text. The genre of this text is different too. This is rabbinic literature in the genre of mysticism, specifically relating to the throne chariot of God, so that's known as Merkava mysticism. Anyway, the rabbi has this vision of heaven and he meets this angel called Metatron. And Metatron explains that he's the same guy who used to be known as Enoch, or the, the artist formerly known as Enoch. And this whole book is basically the sayings of Metatron, who is described as being the angel of God's presence. That's a big step up from the humble guy we saw in Genesis 5. It sure is. Metatron goes on to enlighten Rabbi Ishmael about all the workings of heaven and some interesting stuff comes out of the things he has to say. Historically speaking, we are long past the point where the Jewish people are still comfortable to speak about God in direct terms, as though he had any kind of tangible form. Basically, in a massive overreaction to Jesus Christ, it went out of fashion to say things like you could say back in Second Enoch about seeing God. At this late stage in antiquity, you now have to say things like the imminence of God or the glory or the radiance or something like that, but you can't say that you actually saw God. So there's all this talk about the Shekinah, the cloud of glory that obscures God. And the other thing that's going on in this period is that Jews are starting to move away from this two powers in heaven theology, which they had maintained throughout the entire duration of Jewish history to this point. What do you mean by two powers in heaven? It's the idea that Yahweh, the most high God, is an immaterial God who dwells in the heavens, but you also have Yahweh existing in a form that's capable of interaction with the material world, as we see throughout Scripture. So we would point to things like the angel of the Lord, or the commander of the Lord's host, or the word of the Lord who comes to Abraham, for example. And when we look at that, we consider those instances to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus the Messiah. He's the second power in heaven, the second Yahweh figure. And that turns out to be a major theological point being made in this narrative because Metatron describes this situation where he gets glorified and elevated so high above all the other angels and every other power and principality in heaven that he effectively becomes God's right-hand man. He actually gets given the title of Yahweh. And then Metatron becomes this enormous celestial being whose body is the size of the world. And then he gets wings and each one of his wings is the size of the world. And it's just getting really ridiculous. Like if he was super cyan before, he's like well over 9,000. He's like 900 billion. And then when someone gets brought before him and says to Metatron that he must be the second power in heaven, they actually take away the throne from Metatron and scourge him because they need to demonstrate that this is an impossibility. They need to drive home the point that no tangible being could ever be considered equal with God. So he goes back to standing before the face of God rather than being seated beside him. And this is a really important point because it demonstrates the sensitivity to this issue that's arisen in the wake of the Incarnation. Nobody had a problem with Enoch being the son of man back in the 2nd century BC, but you fast forward to the 2nd century AD, or whenever this was written, and it becomes anathema. 
not only that, but this story about Enoch doesn't even have any reference to the sons of God having children by the daughters of men, unlike the previous two books of Enoch. That's quite unusual, but it shows a very intentional distance being created between Judaism and the traditional view of these ideas. So we're definitely in anti-Christian territory here. Oh yeah, not only that, this shows a complete backflip on Orthodox Jewish teaching from the very beginning, and there's no more talk of Messiah and no more apocalyptic visions of future glory. The whole focus now shifts to illustrating how big and how great and how unsearchable God is, and how he's got everything in the cosmos under control. So this whole narrative reads like an exhortation to just keep your head down, leave things up to God to work out, and stop looking to any created or embodied person to save the day. And this book doesn't get included in anybody's canon of scripture either. Yeah, that's right. You wouldn't believe how tired I get of refuting people who insist that all of these books of Enoch were removed from the Bible. They can't have been removed. They were never included. Anyway, I'll get off that hobby horse now. I reckon I've had enough of Enoch for a while. Let's do some Q&A. All right. That's a great idea. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Here's another question from our mate Warren. Hi, Warren. Melchizedek and Jesus, to my understanding, are the only people in the Bible ever referred to as high priest and king. They also ate or provided the wine and bread offering, which, of course, we know what that is. What's the significance of this meeting? I know you mentioned it in the podcast before, but I wanted to look at it, especially along the lines of high priest and king. Additionally, does the idea of the salt covenant come into play there too? Okay, so there's some interesting thoughts there. Warren's right, I have spoken a little about Melchizedek on a previous episode of the podcast, and if you want to listen to that one, it's in Season 3, Episode 17. To start with, I don't think that the idea of a salt covenant is particularly in play here because it doesn't come through in the text. We don't have any tradition, as far as I'm aware, that invokes a salt covenant involving Melchizedek. But certainly the meeting of Abram with Melchizedek is highly significant for the people of God, so let's have a look at it. The mention of bread and wine is actually quite unusual. And it's no surprise that we don't see any mention of the cultic use of wine in Israel during the Old Testament period. It just doesn't form part of the religion of Israel. In fact, it's not until we get into the Second Temple period in the Book of Jubilees that there's any mention of wine used as part of the religious observance of the Passover. And you can find that in Jubilees chapter 49, verse 6. And it says, And all Israel was eating the flesh of the Paschal Lamb and drinking the wine and was lauding and blessing and giving thanks to the Lord God of their fathers and was ready to go forth from under the yoke of Egypt and from the evil bondage. That's something that I guess we don't really think about. So things that don't appear in the text that get you sometimes. Yeah, that's right. Given that we don't have any early examples of the use of wine in ritual or religious context in Israel, and the use of wine here is in a pre-Israelite context, that should indicate that our search for the significance of this practice should take us outside of Israelite religion as defined in the Torah. Remember that the context of Genesis 14 is much earlier than the established nation of Israel that would come into being as the Israelites occupied the land. So where are we going to look to find the origin of this practice that Melchizedek has performed with Abram? I'm going to suggest that Melchizedek brought it with him since the text of Genesis 14 makes it clear that he's the one who actually provided the bread and wine. And if we're being logical about it, we should expect that Melchizedek came from a place where the use of wine is known in some kind of priestly function, particularly in the context of victory in battle, since that's what we see in Genesis 14. I'm going to read the passage to get it fresh in our minds before we go any further. 
This is Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20. After his return from the defeat of Kedalaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I might just say that I prefer a translation that says creator rather than possessor of heaven and earth there. Where does Melchizedek come from? The text tells us that he was king of Salem and priest of God most high. Now we have lots of references to Jerusalem and to Melchizedek in later biblical and second temple period texts. But in terms of the Torah itself, there's no further reference to Melchizedek and no mention of Jerusalem at all. It's commonly held that this place called Salem is in fact Jerusalem. But that tradition has a convoluted history. It turns out that Salem wasn't always Jerusalem. We have ancient references from the time of Abraham to a place with a name that sounds kind of similar. We have Urushalim. That could be Jerusalem. But the problem is that we don't actually have a linguistic connection between those two names, Jerusalem and Salem. It turns out that Salem is actually a region in the vicinity of Shechem. We've got some biblical evidence for that, as well as external references. Let's have a look at what the Bible says about that place. This is Genesis 33, verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. But I don't see Salem mentioned in that verse. So that's from the ESV, and they've done a weird little gloss with the translation where they've said Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. But in the original... Yaakov Bayavo Shalem Ir Shechem should be read as Jacob came to Salem, a city of Shechem. Hmm, I kind of feel like the ESV is letting us down a bit here. Yeah, I know what you mean, but that's just one reference. So I don't understand if that isn't convincing on its own. Let's have a look at some more stuff. This is from Judges chapter 9 from verse 26. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. Now what we get from this passage is the idea that wine can be seen in use in a ritual setting in Shechem. Going back to Genesis 12.6, we see that Abram spent time in Shechem. And it seems kind of odd that Melchizedek ought to turn up after the events of this battle in Genesis 14 without any prior knowledge of Abram and his activities. I think it would be fair to say that Abram already had interactions while in Shechem with Melchizedek. Getting back to Salem, there's another reference in the apocryphal book of Judith. This is chapter 4, verse 4. Therefore they sent into all the coasts of Samaria, and the villages, and to Bethoran, and Belmen, and Jericho, and to Chobah, and Isora, and to the Valley of Salem. And if you know anything about the geography of those names, you'll know that we are definitely in the vicinity of Shechem. In fact, that area which is surrounded by four mountains is known to this day as the Basin of Salem. I don't know anything about sport or politics or obscure Israelite geography, but I'll take your word for it. (laughs) Fair enough. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the use of wine in Israelite feasts and festivals was not widely attested in the early history of the nation, but it was well known that Israel's neighbours were using wine in their own religious practices. And you see that in this passage from Judges chapter 19. This is from verse 17 to 21. And they said there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. 
Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebonah. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. So again, we have the people in the region of Shechem coming out to the vineyards to participate in festivals. Now, a lot of what I'm bringing you here in answer to this question is coming from a journal article published in the Journal of Biblical Literature, volume 90, number 4, December 1971. And it's called Loci of the Melchizedek Tradition of Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20. It's by John G. Gammy from the University of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Here's a short quote from that paper. One of the outstanding features of the Melchizedek priesthood was its apparent power to effect victory over enemies. In his blessing on Abram, Melchizedek says, Blessed be El Elyon who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This same power to effect victory over enemies inhered at Shiloh in the ark from 1 Samuel 3 verse 3 and chapter 4 verses 3 to 4. And after the destruction of Shiloh, when the priesthood transferred to Nob in the linen ephod, the holy bread, and in the cultic object, the sword of Goliath. That's in 1 Samuel 21 verses 2 to 10. It is thus highly probable that the peculiar power of the Shilonite priesthood to effect victory over enemies went back to the time of Melchizedek, with whom that same power was apparently connected in some way. Even though the Eloist in Exodus 17 verses 8 to 16, the Deuteronomist in Deuteronomy 20 verses 1 to 9, and the priestly source in Numbers 10, 9 and 10, 35 to 36 and 31 verse 6, recall the power of the Mosaic Aaronitic priesthood prior to and during a battle against enemies. Nowhere does this power appear to be as integral a part of their priesthood as it was of the priesthood of Melchizedek and the Shilonites. The participation of the Mosaic Aaronitic priest in battle was but one of many sacral actions he performed. The relationship of Melchizedek and the priests of Shiloh Nob to battle appears to be, however, an outstanding aspect of their sacral power. That's the end of the quote. And know the irony of consistent themes across three apparently different sources. You might have picked up on his use of the source-critical approach to the text. Wasn't lost on me, but that's beside the point. So what was the point? Well, I don't think we can argue that the priesthood that Melchizedek held actually had an effect on the battle that Abram had just fought, at least if we assume that Melchizedek had no prior involvement with Abram in the lead up to the battle. But we've already established that Abram was in Shechem earlier in a place where the religious practice had similarities to what we see performed by Melchizedek. And that means that the time Abram spent in Shechem may have been influential on the battle that came afterward. I'll just read another quote from Gammy's paper. There is widespread agreement among scholars that after the glory of the sanctuary at Shechem had faded, it transferred to Shiloh and finally to Jerusalem via Nob. As it is well known, after the fall of Shiloh, the Shilonite priesthood transferred to Nob near Jerusalem. After the destruction of the priests of Nob at Saul's command, the sole heir of this priesthood, Abiathar, attached himself to David. That's in 1 Samuel 23 verse 6 and 30 verse 7 until finally David settled in Jerusalem with this heir of the Shilonite priesthood still in his company. That's in 2 Samuel 8, 17. So what does that mean? 
What Gammy is suggesting in his paper is that the focus of the priesthood of Melchizedek may have shifted over time in keeping with the geographical centre of Israelite worship, which eventually came to rest at Jerusalem. He's basically saying that the priesthood of Melchizedek moved with the Israelite people from Shechem to Shiloh to Nob to Jerusalem. And that's why in the later traditions, such as the Psalms and Second Temple period literature, including the New Testament, the association of the priesthood of Melchizedek rests with Jerusalem. And it's not just tied to the people involved in the priesthood, but the action of God himself as mediated through that priesthood. Okay, I think I can see how that works. Now, on a recent episode of the podcast, I mentioned the particular use by Israelites of the divine name El with reference to Yahweh. We see that with Joshua when he speaks of the living God. And I mentioned that he was specifically referred to as the living God in that context because living is associated with moving. I think we see a similar image in the portrayal of God in connection with the tradition of the Melchizedek priesthood. The living God moves and establishes his name wherever he wants to go. And this priesthood, with its strong ties to victory over enemies, remains with the Israelite people as they move through the promised land. Now, Warren asked about the significance of the bread and wine in light of its connection to Melchizedek and priest and king. I don't think it connects specifically through the context of the Passover tradition that I mentioned earlier, having been first recorded in Jubilees. I really just brought that up to show evidence of how late we get in the Israelite history before we see any significant use of wine in a ritual context. But there's definitely no understating the fact that the bread and wine was significant in the eyes of Jesus, who, as the author of Hebrews tells us, is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And I think we may be able to see some important theological messaging there. Jesus is the intermediary who travels with us and guarantees victory over our enemies. And that means that the offer of the bread and the wine was an acknowledgement of the victory of God, mediated by the actions and through the person of Jesus. In case you are not convinced, have a look at Psalm 110, which is the one that makes reference to Melchizedek, and pay particular attention to the context. Here it is from verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Look at all that language of victory over enemies. I don't think it can be much clearer that the invocation of Melchizedek is designed to reinforce the certainty of the victory. And this ties in with the idea of messianic expectation that we've talked about in recent episodes, where Melchizedek is retrospectively cast as a messianic figure who provides a type that will find fulfillment in the Messiah, who is ultimately Jesus. It's kind of obvious now that you've pointed that out. Yeah, there is actually a tradition that suggests that Melchizedek himself may have been a physical manifestation of the second Yahweh figure who ultimately did become incarnate in Jesus. I would exercise some caution with that idea, but as it goes with a lot of these things, it might just depend on how you interpret that. But getting back to the context of victory over enemies with regard to the priesthood of Melchizedek, I would encourage you to take the time to go and read the entire chapter of Hebrews 7, which begins with Abram's victory in Genesis 14. And that actually brings us back to 2nd Enoch and the Melchizedek tradition that's found at the end of that book. 2nd Enoch tells us that Melchizedek was born in the immediate context of the days of lawlessness preceding the flood. 
And the next time that he would appear would be the encounter with Abraham that we know from Genesis 14. In both situations, we find the people of God having victory over enemies, which is a victory attributed to the Lord. So is that why the book ends with the inclusion of the story about Melchizedek? I think so, yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, All right, I think that's enough for this episode when we've probably had enough of talking about Enoch for a while. What have we got next week, Tim? Next week, we're finally returning back to Genesis 5, and we'll carry on with our coverage of the chapter, beginning with the son of Enoch, who is, of course, Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible. Certainly looking forward to that, and I'm sure our listeners are too. We'll be back next time for another fantastic episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. We'll see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Let's get into it, eh? Yeah. Yep. No stuffing around. No time for faffing about. No faffing here. No time for lollygagging and chin wagging. No. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant... What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Stop it. Stop your lollygagging. We just talked about that. We're trying to be serious here. (laughs) So that's the Adamic stream of thought coming into the story. <sighs> Let me try that again. <laughs> uh, dear. The mute button. I oh, know. It's like, what was the uh, the quote of 2020? It's like, you're on mute. Um, there's something that I guess we don't really, there's something like, <laughs> where does, I'm going to try that again. All right. Good night. All right. Fairly well, my good friend. You also be fair and well.